0: If you manually type or even send a a text message on your phone, you're in violation. Uh, According to law, anything beyond a single touch of your phone is too much. Even if you're stopped at red light, sitting in, in traffic, stalled, Whatever it is, it's a violation of the law. The, the law was passed because there, there is a recognition that when we're doing something complicated like driving, any kind of distraction can raise a risk of, of a problem. It can raise a risk of an accident. That we are not as effective at something complicated like driving when we're distracted. Now, I imagine that we all understand this idea. Whether we agree with the... The solution or not, that's a different story, but we we understand the the problem. We know that when we perform complicated tasks like, like driving, we are less affected when we try to intersperse a different task at the same time. Well, a similar principle holds true when we come to our Christian lives. We are to perform tasks that Christ has given us, and whether we do those tasks well or not Depends somewhat if we're distracted by other tasks. This morning, we are going to conclude our study through Paul's letter to the Colossians. Next week, I ask Pastor Aaron to preach as I plan to spend this week as a reading and planning week. And then the following week, we will launch into the third book of the Psalter. If you're wondering what third book of Psalters, there's five books in the Psalter and what we consider the Psalms. The third book is Psalms 73 through 89. So the the plan is to work our way through those as our next series. Several weeks ago as we were working our way through Colossians, we recognized that, that Paul had wrapped up addressing the core issues that he intended to address with this letter. He has spent the, the last part of the letter sending greetings back and forth to various people and churches, and, and we've looked at those greetings in, in our sermons, see what we could learn from, from those, but the core idea of the letter was wrapped up several weeks back. Well, this morning we have one final verse left to consider. You can see on screen, one verse. In, in, in a way, this last verse appears kind of detached from the rest of the letter, Paul characteristically had a, another person actually write the form. Paul would, would dictate the letter, and, and then he would have this other person, a, a person who had the job called an amanuensis. That person would take the dictation, and write it down in very precise, easy-to-read script. Yet, in in order to authenticate that the letter actually was coming from him, Paul's pattern, we see this mentioned in several of his letters, his pattern was to pick up the pen at the end of the letter and to write a final note in his handwriting. Uh, Apparently, his handwriting was quite distinctive, and by sending this final note in his writing, that was a way to authenticate that this was a genuine letter from him to the people. Well, Paul's writing that last note in, in this final verse, is his note of authentication. But I don't think that is all that Paul is doing. He's not simply signing it to say, this is from me. In his closing words, Paul leaves some final things ringing in our ears that, that combine to sum, summarize the entire letter. The, the entire letter is about Christ. The the person of Christ, the the victorious sacrifice of Christ, the the transforming work of Christ, the the expectations of Christ. That's been what this letter has been about. Through the letter, we've been called to to recognize who Christ is and what he has done. We're to recognize what he has done for us and what he expects of us in return. We're we're called to serve Christ as, as he transforms us. Paul doesn't write much what he, was, what he does write leaves us enough to form one final thought. We serve Christ with a Christian hope fixed on our glorious Savior. That final thought comes out of the few words he writes. We serve Christ with a Christian hope fixed on our glorious Savior. If you have your Bibles open to Colossians, look at the last verse here of chapter 4. I. Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If all he was doing was authenticating it, that would be sufficient. Stop right there. And there is a period there, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, but notice there's more words yet. Remember my imprisonment. Grace be with you. Paul clearly makes two statements there at the end of this verse. They, they may appear unrelated to one another, But yet when you put those two statements in the context of this entire letter, from Paul's statements, we learn this principle. We serve Christ with a Christian hope fixed on our glorious Savior. Think about the the first statement. Remember my imprisonment. When we connect that statement to his encouragement, grace be with you, we we come to understand that we we have Christian hope but not blind despair. We have Christian hope. That's what this whole letter gives us. We have Christian hope. Grace reminds us that we have hope, but it's not hope with blind despair because of grace. Now, I plan from the outset of this series to treat this verse as a separate sermon. I planned that several months back because we've been spending six months on this series now, and I planned the series quite a while before that. That's part of what I'll be doing next week is planning some of my future series. Still, in God's providence, a couple of weeks ago, I read a book that concluded with some thoughts that really have helped shape how I'm presenting the ideas this morning, how I'm expressing them. The the book was entitled Strange New World. It's it's a book by Carl Truman. His goal is to trace how over the last several centuries of philosophy, we've had Philosophical, philosophical thoughts develop, and, and over several centuries how that's led us to the sexual revolution that hit us in the past decade. A time when such a statement as I, I'm a girl trapped in a boy's body can even make sense rather than be nonsensical like it would have been 10 years before. Now that, we're, that idea is considered sensical. As Truman concludes his book he, he writes the world in which we live seems set to be entering a new, chaotic, uncharted, and dark era. But we should not despair. I think that's essentially the idea Paul's getting at with reference to his imprisonment. Remember, he wrote this letter to us while he was sitting in a prison in Rome. He was under arrest there. He, he was sitting in a prison in Rome after he'd spent two years imprisoned in, in Caesarea. He was in prison for two years, but then he had to appeal to Rome. He had to ask for a transfer to the emperor to avoid being put to death by the Jews. Certainly Paul's request here to remember his imprisonment, it could serve as a request for prayer. Remember my imprisonment might be an appeal for prayer as... Believers would think about circumstances, it would be natural to expect that they would pray for him, just as we do for other people, as we think of them and we think about their circumstances, we pray. But is that all Paul is getting at when he writes these words? If if all he wanted was for the Colossians to pray for him, why didn't he specifically write pray for me, rather than remember me? After all, in verse 4 of this very chapter, he's already asked for prayer because of his situation. If he's simply repeating himself here with his need for prayer, why didn't he say so? Or is he doing more than that? To me, it seems likely he's doing more than simply asking for prayer. Paul has been encouraging the Colossians to resist the false teaching that, that is all around them. He's been encouraging them to to serve Christ faithfully. He's challenged them in this letter to deny their own desires and and to focus on Christ. Focus on Christ and the desires that Christ has. Yet his own imprisonment makes it clear that doing that kind of service for Christ carries real-life risk. Paul's in prison because of his service to Christ. A nod here to his his imprisonment at the close of this letter. That's a subtle reminder that that the transformation that Christ is performing in the lives of the Colossians and the duties that, that Christ calls them to because of that transformation also calls them to hardship. There are relational challenges. There are physical dangers involved in serving Christ. That was true for the Colossians, and the same is true for us. The transformation of Christ does not lead to an easy life. There is absolutely no guarantee that that we'll live a life of comfort and ease because we follow Christ. In in fact, the, the direction that our culture is heading, where we see this rapid transformation going on, the direction it's heading suggests that life could quickly go the other direction from ease. It could go towards suffering very, very quickly. After all, I don't think 10 years ago, any of us would have guessed that pastors in Canada would go to jail for simply gathering their churches together for worship. And yet we've seen that happen. I don't think we would have expected churches in California to face lawsuits because they gathered their church to worship. And yet they have. In the same time frame, we've had at least one professor fired from a self-proclaiming Christian college simply for standing against homosexual marriage. We've had many Christians starting fear that they will lose their employment in large corporations for not willingly using the preferred pronouns of co-workers when those pronouns do not align with their biological sex. We've seen several businesses that have been forced to close because they refuse to use their skills in their businesses to, to celebrate homosexual unions. Not to mention that in the last few years, we've seen women's collegiate sports dominated by biological males. Ten years ago, none of us would have thought these things could happen. We would have anticipated them in even a decade in the past. And yet now we are living in what many sociologists, philosophers, and theologians all describe as a post-Christian nation. America is no longer a Christian nation, it's a post-Christian nation. We can no longer expect that Christianity will be considered honorable and respectable. Rather, we can anticipate that being a Christian might possibly lead to disparagement at the very least, if not outright, physical hardships. In other words, we can anticipate that we will likely find ourselves soon in the very same social niche that Christians have found themselves in largely throughout the 2,000 years of Christian history. We will be the cultural minority rather than a majority. In fact, I'm planning this winter to use our spiritual family nights for those of you that aren't familiar with that term spiritual family night is the name we give to our last service of of the month in the evening we take our sunday evenings on the last sunday of the month and call it our spiritual family night because we do something different in that service this winter i'm planning to to discuss this concept living as a cultural minority Each month we're going to talk about different ways that that you and I can anticipate that, that we will find ourselves in minority status within our culture simply because we are Christian. Now, I think it's fortunate many of you already live as ethnic minorities in our culture. I think it's fortunate because I think you will have a lot to teach us. How do we live with a minority status? most likely we're all stunned by by the rate of change that swept our culture. We are probably unsettled by it. Change is unsettling, and when it comes at this kind of of speed, it is extremely unsettling. Rapid change that that brings hardship, it can easily lead to despair. What I'm calling blind despair, because our, our vision focuses in on our hardship and our hardship alone, and we can't see anything else. The hardships capture our attention. Yet, yet as, uh, as despair starts to contract our vision, we're called to remember Paul's imprisonment. Remember my imprisonment. Now if that was all he wrote, if all he did was tell us to remember the hardships that come with Christianity, then, then yeah, despair might be a reasonable response. But Paul immediately Reminds us of God's grace as well. God's grace. God's grace takes us back to Christ. God's grace takes us back to the hope that we have in Christ. Ultimately, it doesn't matter what happens in this life, we have Christ. It doesn't matter what kind of hardships may come from our culture, we have Christ. We have been reconciled. We have been redeemed. We have never been promised a life of ease or comfort, but we are promised eternity. We have Christ. In Christ, we are being transformed, and we are being transformed so that we can display Him to our world. In Christ, we will be holy and blameless when we're presented to God the Father. Nothing this world can throw at us will change that. We have Christ. In other words, in Christ, we have hope. Christian hope. That the way we hold on to that hope, the way that we avoid despair, is by fixating our gaze on our Savior. To see him in his glory. That's been Paul's point throughout this letter. We serve Christ with a Christian hope fixed on our glorious Savior. We have Christian hope, not blind despair. We're reminded of this truth here as Paul mentions his imprisonment tied to grace. At the same time, Paul's mention of grace tied to his imprisonment, if we flip it around, reminds us that we have Christian hope not naive optimism. Christian hope, not naive optimism. Naive optimism is is a positive attitude that's really detached from reality. It's what Truman in his book refers to as the Pollyanna perspective. Just ignore everything that might be bad, every negative situation that we might face, just ignore that and, and have optimism instead. You know, that can come to us as Christians if we focus solely on God's grace. We can become Christian Pollyannas. After all, God's grace, as I'm sure we all know from Sunday school, is God pouring his favor out on us. That's what God's grace is. It's his favor poured upon us who don't deserve it. If all we do is focus on receiving God's favor, then an expectation can develop. That only positive blessings can possibly come our way. Because isn't that what God's favor is? Positive? Well, Paul doesn't allow us to have naive optimism. He's already grounded his statement about God's grace in his imprisonment. The potential of a Roman prison would quickly dispel any naive optimism for the Colossians. It should do the same for us. Instead of naive optimism, we are to understand that that when the hardships of life come, especially the hardships that come because we are Christians, when those things come, that is the moment that God's grace will be there as well. God's matchless grace. God's undeserved grace. God's sustaining grace. Grace that, that flows through the finished work of Christ. Grace that flows through the blood of Christ. Grace that shines with all the brilliance of the empty tomb. Grace that sustains us in every circumstance comes even in the trying circumstances. I believe most of us know this basic truth about God's grace. We know this. You've sat through enough sermons and enough Sunday school lessons that you know God has promised his grace to us. You can define his grace. You probably even know the acronym, God's Riches at Christ's Expense, right? We know how to define it. You can state your confidence in his grace. But do you believe in his grace? Do you really, really believe it? When someone sideswipes your car on the way home today because they were driving carelessly, do you believe God's grace is with you? Do you believe that event is God's favor in your life? This week, when you receive a call from a dear friend that she's been diagnosed with stage four cancer, do you believe God's grace is with you? Do you believe God's grace is with her? When a family member calls you a bigot because you will not congratulate him on the announcement that he's planning a union with his boyfriend, do you believe that God's grace is with you? When your elementary daughter comes home and and tells you that, why can't she be lucky like her friend because her friend is so lucky she has two moms? Do you believe God's grace is with you? I fear that we are more likely to live in naive optimism than we recognize. Many of us seem to truly expect that that God's grace means that nothing hard or painful will ever come into our lives. And the moment it does, we slip towards despair and grumbling. We expect that The culture will agree with our views and our morality. We expect that they'll have respect for us standing for biblical truth. We don't expect to be disdained. And we become quickly discouraged when difficulties and unexpected challenges arrive in our life. Friends, nothing that happens changes the Christian hope that we have in Christ. Nothing. You know, this is one of those words, you don't need to exegete too hard, nothing means nothing. Everything that happens in this life is under the grace of God. It is God's favor pouring upon us. We have God's grace. We have God's care in Jesus Christ, Period. Our job is to keep our Christian hope by keeping our gaze fixed on Christ. We need to know Christ. We need to know Christ well. We need to know Christ intimately. We need to know him so that our gaze does not shift from him when hardships come. Because that's how we know his grace. Now, I assume that at least some of you have your Bibles still laying open to Colossians. If not, it's a good time to open them back up. Turn back to the beginning of this book. We're looking at the last verse, but I want you to look at the beginning. Look at the second verse of this letter. Do you see the really the first words that Paul writes to the Colossians? Verse 1 and the first half of verse 2, those are the wrappers. You know, in an email, you have a wrapper around the email text that says here's who it's going to, who it's from. Letters had the same thing in that day. Even our day, we put wrappers around our letters. Well, that's what the first verse and a half is, is the wrapper. The first words of the verse that Paul writes is the words there. Do you see them? Grace to you. Grace to you. Essentially, the very first words he writes are the same as the final words he writes. Grace be with you. Yes, the Christian life is going to have trials and hardships. Remember my imprisonment. It's not an easy life to be a Christian. But we are wrapped in God's grace. Grace that's given to us by the person of Christ. Grace that transforms us to reflect Christ so that we can serve Christ in a world that needs to know Christ. Grace that leaves us with Christian hope, not naive optimism. We serve Christ with a Christian hope fixed on our glorious Savior. We have Christian hope not naive optimism. We serve Christ with a Christian hope, hope that's fixed on our glorious Savior. That's the idea that these final words wrap together. Our Christian hope comes by fixing our gaze on our glorious Savior. Our glorious Savior comes by by understanding that His grace is with us from beginning to end. Nothing can separate us from the grace that we've received from God in Christ Jesus. This morning, I'm going to have us review this core truth in a different way than I've done before. This letter is wrapped in this idea that God's grace is with us through all the hardships. We've studied this letter over the past six months. We've learned much about the the transforming work of, of Christ that comes through His grace. Well, let's remind ourselves of that work. I've asked Adam Rogalski to come and read the entire letter to us this morning. And yeah, I encourage you, follow along in your Bibles as, as he does that. Review and rejoice in the grace that we have from Christ, the grace that is with us. Fix your gaze on Christ, as Adam reads. Adam.
1: Okay, so I'm going to get myself in trouble right from the beginning here. Um, When pastor asked me to read, uh, he didn't tell me what translation to prepare it out of. So since we've been listening to it in the NASB for the last several months, I thought it would be a good idea to to hear it in the NLT. Um, Since you're going to be hearing it in its spoken form, that's a little bit easier for the hearer to listen to and to follow. So since faith comes by hearing, I'm going to suggest that you perhaps set aside your Bibles. Set aside your devices and simply be a Colossian for the next several minutes and simply listen as I read and hopefully let God's Word speak to you. This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and from our brother Timothy. We are writing to God's holy people in the city of Colossae who are faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. May God our Father give you grace and peace. We always pray for you and we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all of God's people, which come from your confident hope of what God has reserved for you in heaven. You have had this expectation ever since you first heard the truth of the good news. The same good news that came to you is going out over all the world. It is bearing fruit everywhere by changing lives just as it changed your lives from the day you first heard and understood the truth about God's wonderful grace. You learned about the good news from Epaphras, our beloved co-worker. He is Christ's faithful servant, and he is helping you us on your behalf. He has told us about the love for others that the Holy Spirit has given you, and so we have not stopped praying for you since we first heard about you. We ask God to give you complete knowledge of his will, And to give you spiritual wisdom and understanding then the way you live will always honor and please the lord and your lives will produce every kind of good fruit all the while you'll grow as you learn to know god better and better we also pray that you'll be strengthened with all his glorious power so that you will have all the endurance and patience that you need and may you be filled with joy always thanking the father who has enabled you to share in the inheritance that belongs to his people who live in the light. For he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness, and he's transferred us into the kingdom of his dear Son, who purchased our freedom and forgave us our sins. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things that we can see and the things that we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. Christ is also head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. And so he is first in everything. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ, and through him God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and everything on earth by means of Christ's blood shed on the cross. And this includes you, you who were once far away from God. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and desires. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence, and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. But you must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. Don't drift away from the assurance you received when you heard the good news. The good news has been preached all over the world, and I, Paul, have been appointed as God's servant to proclaim it. And I am glad when I suffer for you in my body, for I am participating in the sufferings of Christ that continue for his body, the church. God has given me the responsibility of serving his church by proclaiming this entire message to you. This message had been kept secret for centuries and generations past, but now it has been revealed to God's people. For God wanted them to know that the riches and glory of Christ are for you Gentiles too. And this is the secret. That Christ lives in you. This is your insurance of, of sharing his glory. So we tell others about Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all the wisdom God has given us. We want to present them to God, perfect in their relationship to Christ. And that's why I work hard and struggle so much, depending on Christ's mighty power that works within me. And I want you to know how much I have agonized for you and for the church at Laodicea and for the many other believers who have never met me personally. I want them to be encouraged and knit together by strong ties of love. I want them to have complete confidence that they understand God's mysterious plan, which is Christ himself. In him lie hidden all the treasures of wisdom and of knowledge. And I am telling you this so that no one will deceive you with well-crafted arguments. For though I am far away from you, my heart is with you. And I rejoice that you are living as you should, and that your faith in Christ is strong. And now, just as you accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord, you must continue to follow him. Let your roots grow deep into him, and let your lives be built upon him. Then your faith will grow strong in the truth you were taught, and you will overflow with thankfulness. Don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. So you also are complete through your union with Christ, who is the head over every ruler and authority. When you came to Christ, you were circumcised, but not by a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision the cutting away of your sinful nature. For you were buried with Christ when you were baptized, and with him you were raised to new life, because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ Jesus from the dead. You had been dead because of your sins and because of your sinful nature, which was not yet cut away. But then God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all of our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. And in this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink or for not celebrating certain holy days or new moon ceremonies or Sabbaths. For these rules are only shadows of the reality yet to come, and Christ himself is that reality. Don't let anyone condemn you by insisting on pious self-denial or the worship of angels, seeing that they have had visions about these things. Their sinful minds have made them proud, and they are not connected to Christ, the head of the body. For he holds the whole body together with its joints and ligaments, and it grows as God nourishes it. You have died with Christ, and he has set you free from spiritual powers of this world. So why keep on following the rules of this world, such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Such rules are mere human teachings about things that waste away as we use them. These rules may seem wise because they require strong devotion, pious self-denial, and severe bodily discipline, but they provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires. And since you've been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all his glory. So put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires. Don't be greedy for a greedy person's idolater worshiping the things of this world. Because of these sins, the wrath of God is coming. You used to do these things when your life was still part of this world, but now is the time to get rid of anger, of rage, malicious behavior, of slander and dirty language. Don't lie to each other, for you've stripped off your old sinful nature and all its wicked deeds. Rather, put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your Creator, and become like him. In this new life, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free. Christ is all that matters, and he lives in all of us. Since God chose you to be his holy people, he loves, you must clothe yourselves with tender hearted mercy, with kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults. And forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. And let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body you are called to live in peace. And always be thankful. Let the message about Christ in all its richness fill your lives. Teach and counsel each other with all the wisdom that he gives. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God with thankful hearts. And whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Wives, submit to your husbands as fitting for those who belong to the Lord. And Husbands, love your wives and never treat them harshly. Children, Always obey your parents, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, don't aggravate your children, or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything you do. Try to please them all the time, not just when they are watching you. Serve them sincerely because of your reverent fear of the Lord. Work willingly at whatever you do, as though you were working for the Lord, rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will give you an inheritance as your reward and that the master you are serving is Christ. But if you do what is wrong, you will be paid back for the wrong that you have done. For God has no favorites. And masters, be just and fair to your slaves. Remember that you also have a master in heaven. Devote yourselves to prayer with an alert mind and a thankful heart and pray for us too that God will give us many opportunities to speak about his mysterious plan concerning Christ. That is why I am here in these chains. Pray that I will proclaim this message as clearly as I should. Live wisely among those who are not believers, and make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be gracious and attractive, so that you will have the right response for everyone. Tychicus will give you a full report about how I am getting along. He's a beloved brother and a faithful helper who serves with me in the Lord's work. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, to let you know how we are doing and to encourage you. I am also sending Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother, one of your own people. He and Tychochus will tell you everything that's happening here. Aristarchus, who's in prison with me, sends you his greetings, and so does Mark, Barnabas' cousin. As you were instructed before, if Mark comes your way, make him welcome. Jesus, the one we call Justice, also sends his greetings. These are the only Jewish believers among my co-workers. They are working with me here for the kingdom of God, and what a comfort they have been. Epaphras, a member of your own fellowship, and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends you his greetings. He always prays earnestly for you, asking God to make you strong and perfect, fully confident that you are following the whole will of God. I can assure you that he prays hard for you, and also for the believers in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved doctor, sends his greetings, and so does Demas. Please give my greetings to our brothers and sisters at Laodicea, and to Nympha in the church that meets in her house. After you have read this letter, pass it on to the church at Laodicea so that they can read it too, and you should read the letter I wrote to them. And say to Archippus, be sure to carry out the ministry the Lord gave you. Here is my greeting in my own handwriting, Paul, remember my chains, and may God's grace be with you.
0: We have a glorious Savior, don't we? God's grace is wonderful. Thank you, Adam. And by the way, Adam is not in trouble. In fact, I came close to calling him on, on Friday, asking him to do exactly what he did, but I did not want to throw a curveball at the last minute, so... Obviously, the Holy Spirit's working here. I wanted us to hear the word of God so that we could see how it's wrapped in the grace we receive from Christ. As I said, Michigan has a distracted driving law now. They recognize that there's a problem if our phone distracts us while we drive. Well, our world is trying to distract us as Christians. The way to remain undistracted is to keep our gaze fixed upon Christ if we keep our gaze fixed on him, we will have the Christian hope that that allows us to to faithfully serve as we're called. This morning we've seen that. Paul's reminded us in these final words of this Christian hope. We have Christian hope, not blind despair. We have Christian hope, not naive optimism. We serve Christ with a Christian hope fixed on our glorious Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Weeks, months that you've allowed us to spend studying this dear letter that you gave us through your apostle. A letter that teaches us so much about the grace of our Savior, the transforming work that he does through that grace in our lives, the, the work that he calls us to do within that grace. Even work that brings us into trials and hardship for his glory. Father, I pray that you would help us, enable us, Encourage us, embolden us, so that we will be men and women that display the grace of Christ as we go. May we do it in every situation, every circumstance, so that Christ is indeed magnified. We pray this in his name. Amen.